Have you noticed that politicians struggle to enact the things they run on? That regardless of who wins elections, lawmakers find they cannot pass whatever legislation they like. They find themselves bound by what is popular or at least their sense of it. They can only act within a narrow set of ideas, and that range is called the Overton Window. And on the Overton Window podcast, we look at issues around the country and talk to the people who change what is politically possible. People want politicians to do something about jobs. And some businesses leverage that demand to get tax breaks, free stuff, and big checks from the government. And this is especially prevalent in state government. And it doesn't matter whether this actually creates jobs or is worth the cost as long as it gets lawmakers good headlines. And that's why I'm talking to Greg LeRoy, the executive director of Good Jobs First. He is the leading voice in opposition to selective favors to private business. And we're going to lay out the Overton window on this issue and talk about what can be done to shift it. Greg, welcome. Great to be with you, James. Thanks so much. Yeah. What are the different kinds of special favors uh, that businesses get from state government? Uh, Well, like families, companies pay income taxes, sales taxes, and property taxes. So the incentives that they get for economic development, I'm putting that in air quotes, um, consist of corporate income tax credits, which can obliterate an income tax liability entirely or partially for many, many years, property tax abatements or exemptions or discounts, and sales tax exemptions. Uh, and you, obviously there's other you know, fees and accounting rules and other things that states do as well, but those are the big ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, give me your best shot for what people should oppose these things. Well, boy, so there's so much to say about collateral damage, right? Um, the trouble is, you know, incentives on their face have a place under the sun. Let me make it clear. We're not against all incentives per se. Um, the trouble is, Many incentive programs that began with good intentions have strayed way off the farm from those original good intentions. So, you know, obviously an incentive is when something good should happen and it's not happening and it won't happen until public dollars reduce private risk, right? That's the pure academic definition. So if we have a food desert that needs a grocery store, I think that's a legitimate use of incentives. If we have a citizen returning from incarceration who needs new job skills to reduce the chance that they will return to crime, I think that's a great use of incentives. Uh, Sometimes there's a brownfield cleanup that needs to happen because there's no responsible party left anymore and the land and neighborhood could benefit a lot from productive reuse. That's okay with me too. But many, many, many programs are way beyond that. That is, they become automatic gimmies. The companies assume they are entitled to them. any company hiring anybody or investing any substantial amount of money today because the system has gotten so out of control just assumes that the deal will get gold plated. And when that happens, the rest of the economy suffers, right? The things that benefit all employers, a good school system, efficient infrastructure, public safety, public health, you know, the, the lowest tax rate to allow the, and then the broadest tax base to allow for efficient, fair, government and public services, those all suffer because now you're hoarding and putting lots of eggs in a few baskets. And frankly, the the system gets gained by the big boys. It's dominated by big companies that have the armies of consultants and lawyers and tax accountants to help them dominate the system at the expense of everybody else, every small business, every working family. 
Yeah, it, I mean, you talked about exemptions and abatements, but it goes beyond that. I mean, sometimes these companies actually collect money from other taxpayers. Sometimes it's under the guise of tax policy, as in a credit that can be either refundable, whereas if uh, if the credit exceeds what the company owes in taxes, they collect a, a tax or a, a check that's paid for by every other taxpayer in the state. Sometimes it's uh, uh, they do these things to conceal. Um, that there are transfers being made. So for instance, there's another thing that they do that's called assignable credits, where uh, you receive a tax credit and then you can sell that to another taxpayer, usually for a discount, and then collect cash. And then that taxpayer cashes it, which is a, a, a way that maximizes the cost to government, but minimizes the benefit to the companies. But they do this because sometimes that's just more politically feasible than another thing. Um, there's other things that they do. Uh, now, I think sometimes it's the government's role to provide infrastructure. And mo a lot of times, like the a company pays for that through tapping fees or through something. But sometimes we're just saying, no, we're going to build you whatever you want to. And so sometimes uh, those things start to look like they serve a public purpose, like you talked about. Sometimes they don't. So can you tell me about some of the other uh, favors that uh, companies get besides these tax abatements and what you think about them? Sure. So, um, you know, uh, infrastructure expenses, you know, another off ramp off the uh, interstate, another, you know, lane widenings, uh, big infrastructure improvements are often part of uh, big land use projects, especially if you're talking about like a mall or a, a retail power center or something like that. Uh, utility hookups. And, and to your point, you're right. Uh, s tragically, some states have allowed these things to to grow into other people's money. About a third of the states, including Michigan flirting with the Good Jobs Michigan uh, program, allow employers to keep some of their employees' state personal income taxes. Workers think they're contributing to the state treasury. It shows up on their pay stub that the money got deducted. But at the end of the day, for some of the workers at thousands of companies in America, that's not really what happens. The, the money actually ends up back in the, the boss's pocket. We think that's nuts. It's terrible public policy. Uh, it's really scraping the bottom of the barrel. It's the state saying, you know, we've given you everything. We've given you all your property sales and income taxes, but now let's go find another uh, pot of money to grab for you as well. Yeah, uh, it seems like those type of things are much rarer. Like there are a few places that have them. I think, um, and this kind of lays out like what's politically acceptable. Where are the bounds of the Overton window? I think on one hand, there are job training programs. Every state has multiple job training programs. Most of them are there to benefit workers, to try and help them skill up, to make them more valuable in the marketplace. Every once in a while, some of them kind of work uh, work like a, uh, uh, a benefit to select companies. But that's politically feasible. A bunch of uh, states have them. I think some of these abatements were like, well, you can pay, uh, you can pay half of the property taxes if you want, um, uh, if, if you're going to expand in, in our state. I think those are a little more objectionable, but still well within the Overton window. I think it's when you start transferring money from some companies to other or from some or from residences to others under one of these many guises that are meant to kind of uh, uh, hide the fact that we are transferring money to these companies that I think you still are that you get uh, more objectionable business subsidy policy. And some states are able to do this. And some states are not. Why do you think some states transfer money and other states don't? <laughs> Uh, I think, I mean, I think at the end of the day, most of these incentive programs do amount to 
uh, wealth transfers, frankly. And it's most evident in mega deals, that is deals, you know, of hundreds of millions or even billions of dollars for single facilities, single projects. And it so happens that Michigan, along with New York, has done more mega deals than any other state historically. We've tracked them all in U.S. history. There's more than about 450 of them now. Um, and and when you get a, the average cost per job for the mega deals we've tracked is $658,000 per job. Think about it for a second. There's no way the average auto worker or chemical plant worker or steel mill worker is going to pay $658,000 more in state and local taxes than public services they and their families consume over their working lifetime. Uh, the only thing we can honestly say about a deal that expensive is that there's a big transfer of wealth from taxpayers to shareholders. Everything else is conjecture, frankly, about costs and benefits, but that we can say for sure. Okay. I want to talk about these mega deals because I think this is um, uh, one of the ways that the Overton window starts to shift on this issue is because you have state that states that have programs enacted in a statute, they're there like we, you know, some states will offer some things, other states will offer something else. They all have a different feel to them. But every once in a while, a big company says, we've got a project to sell you. We're going to land in your state, but you need to ante up with something that you don't have already. Structure us a deal, make this deal. And, and like you said, most of the time, that's we're not talking about abating your property taxes. We're talking about giving you um, uh, other other people's money. So, like, uh, how does that like how do politicians respond to those uh, to those type of ultimatums? Uh, all too often they respond, you know, submissively. Um, Governor Jay Inslee of Washington describing the process he went through with Boeing said they put a gun to my ribs. <laughs> he was very angry about it, frankly. Um, Panasonic recently did the same thing to Kansas before awarding, uh, announcing a battery plant deal. They're saying, unless you go back and change the credit you have enacted for us to make it refundable, that is, you're going to write us a check every year, even though we're not going to have enough income tax liability to soak up the credit, you're just going to write us a check. Um, we're not going to, you know, that's, it's a, no, it's a, it's a no deal starter. Michigan obviously sought to get, uh, put the governor under a non-disclosure agreement and get a special rewrite of the deal they just did for their battery facilities there. Same thing. So it's, it's a bipartisan dogma. It's happening in red and blue States. Um, it's, there's an 80 year old tax break industrial complex. That's got everybody hornswoggled. Yeah, it's um, I think, uh, what's interesting about those mega deals is that sometimes they are used to just get a deal for a particular company. It's a one-time thing. We're not going to do it again. We're going to get our good headlines from this one deal, but no one else is going to be eligible. But other times it's, okay, we've we've done it for this company. Now let's set up a program for everyone. So this is a repeat cost. It's not just responding to a particular instance. It's changing policy uh, policy for the state. Um, I think that's one of the ways that this Overton window has shifted from a place where, you know, most place, uh, most people, I think, want uh, your state government to just have a fair field, no favors, everyone plays by the same rules. But this demand to do something about jobs, to land a big business headline has, has caused them to, uh, to do to do some uh, some favors. You mentioned that this is an, a bipartisan issue. 
But I think there's bipartisan skepticism as well. As in, there's people on the right that that oppose uh, selective business subsidies. There's people on the left who oppose selective business subsidies. Um, my bigger question is, uh, they're not strong enough to stop these mega deals. Why aren't more elected officials interested in opposing business subsidies? You know, I think they've drunk the Kool-Aid. I mean, to your point, yes, it's right. Progressives like me and and conservatives like yourself, you know, we joke among ourselves, right, that the left and the right could almost write each other's talking points on these problems. We have very similar criticisms about the fairness and the collateral damage and so on. But it's the squishy middle. It's the centrist Dems and the business Republicans that still are most numerous in in public policymaking bodies and still um, adhere to this, you know, the lockstep dogma that tax breaks create jobs. There's there's never a good time, never a bad time to enact more tax breaks. If we have a surplus, we have to give it away. And if it's hard times, we have to stimulate the economy. So more and more all the time. Uh, that's that's the problem. Um, and, you know, in I wrote a book on the subject 17 years ago called The Great American Job Scam. And I lay out the history of the whole business climatology debate that begins to some degree in the 1930s, but really took hold in the 1970s when the first business climate studies started being released by state manufacturing associations. And they were inherently dishonest and misleading, but they've been used opportunistically by manufacturing and other, and now other employers, financial employers and so on, to cause mass you know, misinformation about what really matters, right? Companies control the site location system in a way that it prevents everybody else from understanding what really matters, that the business basics, the costs that are 98 plus percent of a company's cost structure that are not state and local taxes are the real determinants of where companies expand or relocate. But the system is rigged to make everybody think that tax breaks matter when they are pocket lint in the equation. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point that you made because there's, I think, most people want your state to have a good business climate. That is, we want, uh, Ferris, we want, uh, I mean, this is a debate between progressives and conservatives about exactly what is the best type of business climate. Is it a low tax uh, 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 kind of place or is it a high tax and good quality service uh, 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 type uh, type? type of place. And in fact, I think the American system of, uh, of competitiveness allows us to try uh, both things and see what works. But what you're saying is that, well, there is that, but there's also these places that are trying to pit states after each other over who can be the most uh, generous with their taxpayers' dollars in, in chasing uh, companies that look for subsidies. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I talk about policy kudzu, right? This system started in the South in the late 1930s, but by the 80s and 90s, you know, it was hard. It, if you were to run a theoretical facility through the incentive codes of South Carolina, it didn't look very different from Michigan. If you looked at it from Mississippi versus New York, it didn't look very different. If you looked at Michigan from Tennessee, you know, same-o, same-o. Uh, they really copycatted each other, uh, and, and that's the problem. Uh, it, it's and but to their credit, for example, we've had some business leaders stand up. So the best example are 17 business leaders in the Kansas City metropolitan area that 11 years ago started screaming at the two state capitals, Topeka and Jefferson City, to say we're wasting all this money paying companies to jump back and forth across the state line in the Kansas City metro area. They're not creating new jobs; they're just rerouting people's commuting patterns in the morning, um, and yet you're giving them eight figures a pop. 
to do that. Stop it. You're, you know, we're not doing it. We're getting ripped off. We're getting stuck with higher taxes because of what you're doing and, and lousier schools. Uh, and they prevailed. Those two states now have a legally binding agreement for the last three years saying we're no longer going to use state money to pirate jobs back, back and forth in, in the same labor market. And that's progress. We need to, we need a lot more of those agreements. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, I think that's a good layout of, of, uh, of, of, of the program. There are some things that are clearly feasible. Their uh, transfers start to get objectionable, but usually if you've got a mega deal to sell, that tends to be what, what pushes things over, uh, over, over the headline. Um, those are the political incentives. Job uh, politicians are are chasing job headlines. Um, so the bigger question, I think, is what are you doing about this? What are you doing to try and make uh, uh, um, help legislators say no when companies ask for favors? Sure. So, well, forever we've been pushing disclosure. We think that no matter where you're coming from, whether you're looking caring about fairness to small business or uh, whether companies pay living wages or whether they're subsidizing sprawl or any other issue, uh, we all have to get to first base with sunshine. That is, who's getting the money, what did they say they're going to do with it, and what did they actually do with it? So we've been issuing state report cards for 15 years, and then when states and cities and counties do disclose, we capture that data in a big database we have called Subsidy Tracker. And that's now being used by scholars to do all kinds of amazing things, to show that places with higher subsidy use have greater degrees of inequality, uh, etc. But we love, it's, it's been an explosion of scholarship. Uh, we we joined the coalition with you all and other groups recently to uh, propose state legislation to ban non-disclosure agreements, because that's a very anti-democratic practice that prevents people from scrutinizing deals before they get rammed through, you know, at the last minute uh, through city councils and state legislatures. Tell us about what's going on with that, because I'm familiar with this issue. It seems crazy to me, but I don't think a lot of people know that our lawmakers are making deals behind closed doors and they can't even tell us, uh, us, their, their bosses about it. Yeah. So it's very common for the site location consultants, the secretive middlemen that often broker, whipsaw these deals, run the auctions, run the secret auctions uh, for tax breaks to go to the economic development director of a city or a county and say, I've got a big deal for you, but before we can talk Turkey, you've got to sign this non-disclosure agreement. We're going to make up a, a project code name and nobody's going to know what we're talking about until I tell you it's okay <laughs> to disclose it. Basically the day before the deal is going to get legally enacted often. So an example of this was um, Apple sought a, a big tax break deal for a new data center, a, a server farm that's going to employ very few people in a suburb of Des Moines called Waukee, Iowa. And they secretly negotiated. And then like the day before the city council hearing that was going to get approved with 10 minutes of public comment period, they said, oh, we're going to give Apple $208 million in long-term property tax abatements. That is so undemocratic and so deceitful um and but enabled by a non-disclosure agreement and we think that's wrong all right one of the I, the main benefit that you're trying to uh, perform is transparency and i think this is a really good idea because again like the point of these subsidies these special favors is not to improve the economy and like economists have used clever techniques to look at you know the effects of selective favors and some of them have found positive benefits most found negative benefits None of them found large benefits. Like you cannot turn your economy around by subsidizing the right businesses. But 
But when, and so this is more again about chasing headlines. And when you read those headlines, you'll notice that they talk about how great this is, about how this is an important project, but they rarely talk about the cost necessary to get that headline of all the taxpayer dollars, of all the special favors about um, you know, their effect on even uh, on the market for, uh, for these products and for um, uh, uh, because businesses compete with each other and you're giving favors to one, you're not giving favors to the people that you're competing with. But so they don't talk about that. They don't try and justify the cost. Uh, and so what you're doing is bringing some transparency and saying, no, these headlines come at a cost. Here's the, all the favors that we're getting here. You can look up what, what your governments are doing and we're not, uh, you can take, take what you want, but here's what's actually going on. Like, what do you, why do you think that is going to change um, uh, whether politicians say yes or no to business subsidies? Uh, and we should just add quickly, there's yet another layer of transparency that we've just won a few years ago that's, that's bringing a new dimension to this debate, and that's a government accounting rule. So there's this obscure body called GASB, which sets forth accounting principles for the public sector, and they finally heard us collectively several years ago and issued a new accounting rule called Statement 77 on tax abatement disclosures that says when you file your backward-looking spending document, you, a state, a city, a county, a school district, a special district, if you lost money to a tax break program, you have to name that program and reveal for the first time ever in U.S. history how much revenue you lost to that tax break program. So now we know some school districts are losing thousands of dollars per student per year. Michigan is deeply affected by this as much as other uh, industrialized states. Um, and that's bringing a new dimension to the debate because now we can really talk very concretely about the, uh, the fairness or the harm to public services because everybody knows, you know, good public education is a foundational economic development tool. You, you can't attract good companies. You can't hire smart people if you don't have good schools. So um, that's part of it. I think that um, more public officials are willing to stretch the Overton window. I love your, your frame on that. Um, when there are scandals, right? So we had the Amazon HQ2 moment where the company was clearly jerking everybody around and wasting tons of people's times in hundreds of cities <laughs> on a preposterous uh, auction that it ran publicly, a rare public auction. Um, and I think also Foxconn, that notorious episode in Wisconsin that's been falling apart, but which President Trump you know, wrapped himself around at the time together with the Speaker of the House at the time. Um, when those things happen, people pay more attention. And when they, and they ask, like, how is this possible? How is this legal? Why didn't somebody fix it yet? I get a lot of calls like that from people that I think should know better, frankly. Um, so I think um, that's, that's when things happen. Or when you have an outrageous situation like Kansas City, where companies are jumping the state line, and it's obviously just a ripoff. One of the things that I think would help, I mean, obviously more scandals are going to drive a lot more attention to this and it's going to cause more politicians to ask what whether uh, uh, subsidizing select companies is going to be a, more of a liability than it is an asset. I think one other thing that would help us uh, on this issue is just a more skeptical media. I mean, the key benefit that lawmakers are trying to provide from, special, uh, from uh, handing out select favors is good headlines. Uh, but it's not a given thing that media is going to cover this 
favorably, especially when we're changing laws, where you're having non-disclosure agreements, we're transferring large amounts of taxpayer dollars to these companies. And there are skeptics out there like you and I uh, and most of the economy uh, economists who look into these programs that would provide another opinion about this. And yet news stories about subsidized projects tend to be one-sided positive affairs. Why do journalists fall for this? I agree that we need more skeptical media. And um, I think partly it's because, you know, there hasn't been enough counter voices out there. I mean, we certainly get called a lot by journalists and I can tell the subtext of the call is they need somebody to question the deal because nobody in their state capital uh, would do that because they're running for political cover. Um, you know, we've, we have more than a thousand journalists on our email list. Now we train regularly for journalism conferences. Um, we, our databases are very heavily used by journalists trying to get more context about the deals and looking up the companies to see what their track records are in other places if they're getting a new subsidy package someplace else. Um, I mean, I think we're light years ahead of where we used to be on journalism coverage, but the dogma, the dominant narrative, the bipartisan 80-year-old dogma uh, is still alive and, and well with us. And that means that elites, political elites, uh, are lockstep you know, uh, into the dogma. Yeah, I think it's interesting too because the coalition, like we fought these battles in the legislature. Um, the, there's a coalition for and there's a coalition against, and they have different virtues on each side. But the coalition for is so transparently self interested, as in it's always the people who are going to get cash or favors. And the people who get to hand out cash or favors, that is the local economic development agencies, the state bureaucracies, local booster groups, uh, that kind of thing that makes it seem like it's a community effort. But it comes down to it. They want more power. To, they want more power. They want more favors to sell. And then the, the, the companies that are going to get them want these things. And it's like, guys, this should be pretty transparent that this is self-interested. This is not an attempt to try and improve our economy. I mean, Let's talk about the economic data. Let's talk about the results of, the, of, of these things. And yet, uh, I think there's just enough of them, uh, followed by elected officials who are voting in majorities to pass these things, that I think journalists struggle to try and tell a different story, even when there's opposition. So what do you think is going uh, to uh, need to happen to change that so that it does become a two-side story? Because I think our side has a strong message to tell and some value to bring to the table that people should know about. We should know what our lawmakers are doing to offer special favors to select companies. It's hard to predict what this sort of straw that's going to broke break the camel's back is going to be, James. I mean, I, you know, the next study we're about to issue, in fact, I was working out this morning is about electric vehicle subsidies. And Michigan is one of five states we've identified that have already thrown a billion dollars or more at electric vehicle or electric vehicle battery facilities. Um, you know, it, it, another way to look at this is kind of eggs in baskets. That is, when you do a mega deal, you're putting a ton of eggs in one basket. You're betting on General Motors <laughs> or you're betting on Ford or you're betting on, you know, J.P. Morgan Chase in New York and, or whatever. And you're not betting on these companies because you think they're the future. You're only betting on them because they're coming to you and say, please give us uh, uh, some, spe uh, some special consideration. Um, right. Sometimes with a threat that they might go elsewhere. 
And in General Motors' case, it's not a threat. I mean, the company's been disinvesting Michigan for decades, right? It's been moving jobs and appealing tax assessments for a long time. Uh, yeah, uh, this is a thing that's really important. I think of residents here in Michigan aren't even familiar with is that we have half of the auto and auto manufacturing jobs that we had in 2000. Like the we we've already lost half of the auto industry, and we haven't lost this because they've moved to other states. We uh, people can just produce vehicles with fewer people. It's not going. It's not likely to employ more people in the future, regardless of whether we you know move to electric cars or not. I mean. Uh, manufacturing is just a much more efficient industry than it used to be. And yet when lawmakers or when they've, there's a plant to sell, lawmakers are like, whatever, we'll give you as much uh, as uh, we'll, we'll try and give you what you asked for, because you can at least demonstrate that um, um, uh, we can tell a story about how uh, things are finally going to turn around or something to that effect. Yeah. Well, and here's the rude surprise coming about electric vehicles. Um, if you study them a little bit, yeah, they are mechanically much simpler than internal combustion engine cars and require fewer, many fewer parts. So the upstream ripple effects, the supplier chain jobs created by electric vehicle assembly plants is going to be much smaller than we know today. So, and obviously states are going to lose gasoline tax revenues. They're going to gain some utility tax revenues, but they're going to lose more gasoline tax revenues. So there are going to be fewer jobs and fewer tax revenues as the market switches. And that's ominous and, and also all the more reason to be skeptical about subsidizing what the market's already driving, right? We know Tesla and GM have long waiting lines for their electric vehicles. We know the market's shifting. We know consumer preferences are moving. Why pay the market that's already running in that direction? How optimistic are you that you're going to succeed on this issue? <laughs> um, you know, I am. I wouldn't be doing this. Good Jobs First is 24 years old, and I've been working on these issues most of the time since the Carter administration. So I, I, I've seen a lot of progress in my time, right? Clawbacks used to be exotic European imports, that is, money-back guarantee language, right? Cases like Ypsilanti uh, Township, General Motors plant running away to Arlington, Texas, in the early 90s were cautionary tales that caused states to finally put safeguards like clawbacks in place. And those are very common now. Disclosure, nobody was disclosing at that point. The internet didn't exist, obviously, but even when the internet began to take off, you know, by the early internet years, we had several big states disclosing. And today we have almost every state uh, online with lots, lots more information. Um, we have more performance audits. We have more investigative journalism. We have this agreement between Missouri and Kansas. We have Gasby Statement 77 disclosing the cost of public services. We, we have so many more tools now to have a more educated debate about these if people really want to have the educated debate. Greg, thank you for coming on to talk about what's within the Overton window. Thank you, James. Great to be with you all. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Overton Window, a podcast from the Mackinac Center. Please subscribe and rate. For more, check us out at www.mackinaw.org. That's Mackinac with a C, like the island.